Hello, Rebecca Mays here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. I want to acknowledge that this program was recorded on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. This episode of Stick Together was produced on Jarjarurung country and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. It is brought to you on your local community radio station thanks to the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Recently, I spoke with Debbie Uren, who works for Union Assist, an organisation that helps injured workers deal with work cover claims. We spoke about what she does to support workers and how the system puts profit over people. But first, some union news. On October 27th, the Professional Footballers Association released an open letter which said, By achieving the pinnacle in representing their country at the FIFA Men's World Cup, the Socceroos, through no action on their part, find themselves in the midst of what is likely the most profound human rights issue to affect global sport. That's why we have sought with the players to understand more about the situation in Qatar in relation to human rights. As part of FIFPRO, the World Players Association and the international labour movement, we have sought to know better so we can do better and have built expertise that has been readily available to the players and sits at the core of any organising effort. Through this process, we have been reminded that two things can be true. On the one hand, genuine progress has been made and that awarding the World Cup to Qatar has helped to deliver improvement for the rights of workers in the country, progress that many thought impossible. On the other, we have learned that the World Cup has been associated with terrible suffering and harm for the very people that have made the tournament possible, the migrant workers. As one of the 32 nations to qualify, we acknowledge that the players will receive incredible hospitality and warmth when they play in Qatar. But at the same time, those within the LGBTI plus community in Qatar are not afforded that same respect in their own country. The players have spoken today about what they have learned and what they feel is required to deliver a positive legacy. They know what values define our sport when it is at its best and they know that football's impact on people should be universally positive. They also know that when those values are absent or if football has caused harm, they have a platform to make a stand. The players recognise that their views may not be universally popular. Some will believe they have not gone far enough whilst others will call on them to stick to football and stay out of politics, despite this being a matter of human rights. This polarity says much about the courage of the players and also the increasingly fractured nature of the world. As we near kick-off, the players of every nation will continue to be asked about their position on Qatar. Acknowledging that the players did not award the World Cup host country is critical. They have no say in its delivery and operations. In the absence of leadership from administrators tasked with awarding hosting rights and managing the tournament, it has fallen to players, coaches and fans to provide moral leadership. These groups have had to grapple with their own choices regarding their love for the sport, their country and protecting human rights. Globally, players have used their voice and platform to speak from Finland's Tim Spray to the German, Norwegian and Dutch national teams to our own Socceroos. They have called for respect and dignity for all. This is what can and should be the lasting legacy of Qatar 2022. A legacy that can only be achieved through the continued reform of Qatar's labour laws, improved implementation and ensuring that the progress made to date is not rolled back, but rather becomes an example for the region. 
For those that have had their rights denied or been harmed, they must have access to effective remedy. Because it is only through doing so can football reconcile with the past and ensure the game's social licence to operate. We stand with FIFPRO and the Building and Woodworkers International in calling for the establishment of a Migrant Workers Resource Centre to provide a voice and support for these incredibly brave but inherently vulnerable workers. Equally, we know that this tournament should and must aspire to establish and embed the fundamental rights of the LGBTI plus community. Without doing so, the sport can make no claim for being authentically inclusive. Beyond the final whistle of Qatar 2022, we remain committed to this mission. This mission must also see Australian football do better within our own shores. Our sport must develop its own human rights policy and strategy as a priority in partnership with the players and affected groups. This will allow the 2023 FIFA Women's World Cup to set the standard for human rights at mega sporting events and beyond. We hope to continue to work with Football Australia, who has taken important steps in embedding human rights commitments into all its procurement contracts for Qatar, which the players welcome. Our journey with the players in pursuit of embedding human rights into football will not be easy. But just as the Socceroos have shown through their qualification journey, things worth achieving really are. Also on October 27th, the union movement celebrated that the Australian Parliament passed a bill that will enshrine 10 days paid family and domestic violence leave as a workplace right for every worker in Australia. It is a new workplace right that will literally save lives. And it is all thanks to the tireless work of hundreds of thousands of union members around this country who stood up and said, enough words, we need action. The win comes off the back of a decade of campaigning by the union movement and activists. A decade which has seen us win change, workplace by workplace, agreement by agreement, then in awards and now in the national employment standards. Family and domestic violence is a national crisis. We know the tragic numbers. On average, a woman is killed each week by a partner, ex-partner or family member in Australia. We know that economic security is the primary factor that determines if someone subjected to family and domestic violence remains in, escapes from or returns to a dangerous relationship. Workplaces have a key role to play in supporting a worker facing family and domestic violence. This historic reform will give millions of workers the right to access to 10 days paid leave to escape volatile and dangerous domestic situations. It has taken years of campaigning to get to this win, but more importantly, it has taken thousands of individuals coming together to share their stories and take part in protests, petitions, meetings and negotiations. This moment deserves to be celebrated and remembered. When working people are united with a shared vision, nothing can stop us. On the 31st of October, the ABC reported that the fire station at Avalon Airport had been closed after unsafe levels of PFAS were found in the drinking water. The union representing aviation firefighters said the firefighting chemical was also detected in the water supply at the air traffic tower southwest of Melbourne. Air Services Australia, which operates firefighting and air traffic services at the airport, confirmed it had closed the fire station while a new water supply was set up and a deep clean was undertaken. Our highest priority is protecting the health and well-being of our teams, a spokesperson said. Air Service's 30 aviation rescue firefighters and two air traffic controllers stationed at Avalon have been offered expert health advice and free blood testing. Avalon Airport said drinking water inside the terminal had not been affected and flights were operating as usual. The Civil Aviation Safety Authority has been notified of the fire station closure and told Fire Rescue Victoria crews will step in until the situation is resolved. 
You're listening to Stick Together, all about workers' rights and social justice. Every week on the Community Radio Network. Next, we'll hear an interview I did with Debbie Uren from Union Assist, an organisation that supports injured workers to stand up for their rights in the face of systemic dehumanisation. I'm speaking with Debbie Uren. Okay, thanks, Rebecca. Yeah, my name's Debbie Uren and I work for Union Assist and Union Assist was set up a long time ago, over 20 years ago, to represent union members that have been injured at work to support them. It's a free service and it's been going ever since. And yes, it's it's a wonderful organisation. Uh, we are supported by the unions and the Victorian Trades and Labor Council and also partly funded by WorkSafe. So um, Union Assist was set up to attend work cover conciliations with injured workers. So once an injured worker has put in an incident report, well, hopefully put in an incident report because that's the main first step when someone injures themselves, although an employer may try and talk a worker out of putting in a claim. So it's very important for injured workers to at least put in an incident report, even if it's a minor injury or incident, and to always keep a copy of that because that could end up turning into a full-blown-up claim once a worker goes to a doctor. And once that's happened and if you're unable, if a worker's unable to work, they need to go to their doctor as soon as possible. Now, that's difficult in the regional areas where I do most of my work. It's happened for a long time that GPs tend not to want to support, well, they want to support their patients, but they don't like to get involved in the work cover system, put it that way. For example, insurers don't pay the accounts, it just goes on and on. So they're reluctant at times. So, And also the issue of the GP's shortage as well in the regional areas. Yeah, it's very important to go to your own doctor. Some employers will actually try and get an injured worker to go to one of their doctors or their company doctors and union assist. Well, obviously, we advise workers not to attend any doctors unless they're the insurance doctors once a claim goes in. So um, that's the first thing that an injured worker should do. Once they go to their doctor, the doctor puts them off work with a capacity certificate. They need to put a claim in as soon as possible. Now, the employer has 10 working days once that report goes in to hand it over to their insurance company and their insurance company has 28 days to make a decision. So that's an issue for some workers and a lot of workers that we represent are low-income workers and they're living week by week. So at this stage, if they don't have any sick leave or annual leave that they can access while they're waiting for a claim, they've got no money and it's getting worse at the moment, as we all know. So it's very important to get that claim in ASAP and make sure that your employer does lodge that work cover claim within that 10 days. The insurer will send a worker off to see an independent medical examiner to help with a decision. So um, that should happen pretty darn quick, but, yet sometimes it doesn't. So they have the 28 days, so a claim may get accepted and then rejected after they've seen an independent medical examiner on what that doctor 
um, states in his report. So then if the claim's accepted, that's well and good, but union assisters here, uh, once a, a claim is accepted, to advise workers on their rights while they're on their work cover journey, which is not a really great journey at all. Um, so getting the advice from your union and union assist is very important when the claim is accepted. Now, if the claim's rejected, we're going down a different path and we will have to dispute the decision. So we need to lodge with WIC. Once that happens, a worker really needs to either contact union assist straight away uh, and their union. We're working with the unions because we look after over 30 different unions. So we're working with them. They will send a referral off to union assist and then the process starts. And the sooner the process starts, the better for the injured worker. It can take some time to get to a conciliation. So then we lodge the conciliation for the worker and we advise them and help them through the process of making sure they get their work cover certificates written out every 28 days continuing to go to their doctor and helping them while we're waiting for a claim to be accepted, advising them what they can get, i.e. psychological treatment through the Medicare system, physio through the Medicare system while we're waiting for all that. So we do all that kind of thing. So there's lots and lots of things that an injured worker should not tell the insurance company. And I'll just go through a few of them if you want, Rebecca. Yeah, that would be very interesting. So when they have a meeting with their employers or do workers actually get to speak directly to the insurers? Well, the insurance company will, yeah, will contact them. A caseworker will contact them. And our advice is just to, you know, follow the proper process, make sure you've got your certificates in, you're getting doctor's reports, et cetera. But most of the time, unless it's just a clean-out physical injury, they will ask for a circumstance report, which we call private investigators, but they don't call it that. It's a circumstance report where an investigator will go in and investigate the incident. Now, our advice and the union's advice to injured workers is to, not to speak to them. They don't have to. There is no legal requirement for a, a worker to speak to an investigator. Saying that, a lot of people choose to. Uh, they say they haven't got anything to hide and all mm. this and sometimes it's too late by the time we get them but um, if they're sent to us straight away to get the information about their claim in the first place they will be advised not to speak to an investigator what they, are the they, negative impacts that can happen with, with talking the, uh, to an insurer the, I mean well the investigator is employed by the insurer to go and investigate the incident at the workplace they will interview other employees and a lot of the employees won't say anything. Even if they've witnessed an incident, they won't say anything because they're too scared that they might lose their jobs, etc. So, you know, we do not rely on those when we're supporting an injured worker at conciliation because it's a he said, she said situation and how at a conciliation we cannot try and resolve that. Only a magistrate can resolve those. So that's down the track post the conciliation process. So if a claim has been rejected, we put in the conciliation process, um, we wait for a date, union assist will be in contact with the worker on a regular basis until the date comes up, chasing up doctor's reports, information that we may want to use at conciliation. Like percentage-wise, how many claims get rejected or like do you have to take to the next stage? Um, quite a lot. 
I don't know the percentage of that. Yeah. I know that out of 100% of conciliations, we do resolve around 70%, which mm -hmm. is keeping that 70% of injured workers out of the court systems. We take disputes to conciliation over pay disputes, rejection of physio, they won't pay medication, home health. There's a variety of things that we can if a worker is entitled to that. So we will take any dispute. It really sounds like you're doing amazing work and it's exciting to hear the kind of things that you're doing at supporting workers because sometimes these days a lot of the care has gone out of these kind of roles and people don't feel like people anymore, that we just aren't treating each other like humans anymore within the system. And yeah, programs like Union Assist, what you're doing is so important to support workers through these complicated legal processes and all the steps that you have to take and dealing with all the doctors and insurance and the employer and the yeah thank you for all of the work that you're doing and I, I'm really happy that this is still something that unions are supporting. Yes it is definitely a wonderful organisation and a wonderful support for injured workers and of course it's, there's no cost to the injured worker for this process and um, the injured workers are very grateful. You're listening to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. As you can understand, it's a lot of information and an injured worker does not understand the system. And with changes that happen all the time and with governments, as you know, we have trouble getting our head around it sometimes. So, yeah, it can be difficult. It's um, very important for injured workers to definitely a number one, put in an incident report, whether it's minor, whatever, it definitely, that's the first step for an injured worker because then they've got that proof that something happened on that day at that time and an injured worker should not allow an employer to not put in an incident report. I hear that all the time and they, the employer will say, well, I don't want that, I don't need that, but an injured worker should still have it and go straight to their doctor. If can't get in then have a record that they contacted the doctor that day to make an appointment. So, yeah, it's yeah. very important. We do resolve around 70% that go to conciliation. Mm. It's getting more difficult. Some Is of it? the insurance yeah. companies, some of the things that they're doing of late are not that great, but they're making decisions without sending injured workers to an independent medical examiner. So by the time they get through to us and we put in the, the request for conciliation and we get the copy of the notice, they've made a decision without an independent medical examiner because they've got that 28 days, Rebecca, that I spoke about earlier to make a decision. So they'll make a decision without having any real proof of whether they should deny the claim or not. So, um, And is there a so tendency <laughs> towards denying the claim? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. As yeah. you can imagine, we are very busy. We do at least two a day and sometimes three. And three is really heavy work, doing yeah. three conciliations yeah. in a day. So, yes, they do. They deny 
deny everything so <laughs> as much as they can, obviously. Yeah. I mean, they can't deny an accident that's happened where an ambulance has been called to the workplace, for example, and things like that. But yeah. For other incidents, yeah, but they, they reject exactly. everything. For especially when mental health comes into the picture. Yes, psychological claims have always been difficult, mm. and they are taking up a lot more of our time now. Bullying in the workplace, harassment, people overwork, especially since COVID, stress claims have become more and more. We we tend to be able to resolve a lot of stress claims. At conciliation, they might be not short term, but the employers that do attend the conciliations, they are trying to help. They can see it because it's out there now and everyone's talking about it and Mm. things like that. So, yeah, especially larger employers, they they seem to have it on their HR on, on track of getting workers off to get some help and whether it works or not, you know, not always, but at least... Things are happening slowly, very slowly. Mm. Yeah, there are going to be some changes, but I can't comment on them. Yeah. Mm. There must be so much load that's put on you as the person supporting all these workers. Like, How do you cope with all of these stories and hearing what people are going through every day? Like, Yeah, yeah how do you well, deal with it? Yeah, obviously it does get to you. Asking me that, I actually had a couple of days off last week I just needed a bit of a break and you know like everyone understands that you just need a little bit of a break you've got to keep yourself healthy as well and your mental mental state in a good place to help these workers exactly it's burning out and you can't you're not there to help them yeah so yeah yeah it can be stressful and sometimes you you might you might see me at a meeting and I'm not really there yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. somewhere else sometimes yeah. yeah and you know I've got all my colleagues that I can debrief with and yeah because we're all going through the same thing so, yes yeah. what's the area that you're supporting workers in because I'm sure that there's less people like you in the regions um, supporting workers than there would be in Melbourne, for example. Exactly. Pre-COVID, my area, I was probably in my office once a week. The rest of the time I was out on the road. So my area is Ballarat, Bendigo, obviously, at um, Shepparton, Wangaratta and Aubrey-Wodonga. It's a large area because Ballarat takes you right over to Nil, all those places, that side of town. Uh, Shepherd and all up around that area. Yeah. Uh, so those injured workers have to travel to those areas to yes. attend the conciliations. A lot of people don't know their rights as far as that goes either, because if you're in the country, you're entitled to a motel to be paid for, all your travelling expenses, City Link, all that kind of thing. And that's the kind of thing that union is used to also talk, you know, talk through with the workers, because. That they are supposed to be told these things, but they obviously you know they don't get told those these things because you know let's face it, um, the insurance companies are trying to save as much money as they can for their shareholders. Yeah, it's basically just profits over people. Yes, yes. Well, it is, and um, and we're talking about human beings, and yes. you know, I, I can't understand some of these employers allowing their insurance companies to do some of these things. They're the ones paying the premiums their premiums go up and quite often you will get an employer that says the claim needs to be accepted over the insurer but then sometimes the insurers will say well it's it's our decision 
Wow. And a lot of times insurers, if there's a serious injury, say the claim's down the track, yeah. And um it's you know, and it's kinda like a get them off the system. thing it's yeah. gonna be for the rest of their life. Yeah. So what they'll do is for a start, after 130 weeks on, on weekly payments, if a claim's accepted, they will be terminated and they will doctor shop until they can get a doctor to say that the worker can do some kind of work. Yeah. Doesn't matter what kind of work it is, doesn't matter how long, could be an hour a week, and then they're off the system. It's horrid especially if a worker can't really work at all. And you can see that and it'll go in front of a magistrate and a magistrate will see that straight away. But then there's other times that a worker can only work, say, 20 hours a week. So then they lose that other 10 hours or 20 hours, whatever they were working, their pre-injury hours. They'll lose that after 130 weeks. So their, their income will go down to half, even less. They've got to live off it. This must also just impact people's mental health so much as well. Yeah. I can assure you, Rebecca, a lot of claims will start off as physical and end up with a a psychological component to it. So then we put a claim in for a psychological condition because of the physical injury and the way they've been treated during the process. Yeah, yeah, so, I mean, that even in itself is evidence that the system's not working because it's actually adding further injury, basically, to the workers. Yeah, yeah exactly. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Employers, employers after 12 months, don't have to have the injured worker back at work. They're supposed to, in a short period, to try, try to get them back to work. Mm. But the injured worker is not able to get back to work in that period of time, then after 12 months, the employee can terminate their employment. Their entitlements mm. still continue, but, yeah. yeah, of course, that's going to affect them like, oh, I haven't got a job, they've got yeah. a family, or they might be five years off retirement and it's ruined everything, their plans, etc. Yeah, we're finding a lot of young people are putting, you know, claims in. Our advice is everyone should be in a union, obviously. Yeah. So they've got that that support and it's all free and yeah it's a great organization it it truly is I love working with it obviously because I've been doing it for a long time it's always great when we get a good result for an injured worker and it makes it all worthwhile that's it for stick together this week if you have been injured at work in Victoria you can contact union assist at 0396396144 or via their website at unionassist.org.au Thanks for listening and thanks to Debbie Uran for speaking with us. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 03 9419 8377 and leaving us a message. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. I'm Rebecca Mays. Catch you next time.